I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. So, welcome to the 100th of these Long Now seminars. Uh, I recognize many familiar faces, so I know many of you have, have been steady uh, supporters of the Foundation and attendees of these seminar series. And, uh, in fact, the Foundation is now kind of in commemoration of this 100 thing. We will be publishing, actually, a book, also available as an e-book, which is uh, Stuart's summaries of all the seminars, which those of you who are on his mailing list uh, know that you know, they're actually well worth the read for the ones you missed. And, and this was actually, uh, the book was designed by uh, Alice Rogers, who's one of our um, members. And um, that will be available for the Long, from the Long Now Foundation on the website. Um, uh, Larry has been hacking some of our longest-term en engineered objects, which is law and government, uh, for a long time. I'm sure you all know who he is, um, which is why you're here. So without further introduction, let me uh, bring in Larry Lessig. Thank you. So it's wonderful to be here. This has got to be the coolest group to be able to present ideas to. And so I'm grateful to have a chance to do it. I had a little bit of a fight with the organizers about the title. I go for poetic, so I wanted this to be the title, <laughs> Republic Lost. And they said to me, well, what the hell does it mean? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Republic, comma, lost. <clears throat> that didn't help. They insisted on this much more, you know, engineering-appropriate title, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop. And I thought maybe I would, you know, just subvert their objectives by going back to my other title. But no, okay, I'll stick to the title. I want to make it perfectly clear. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to first describe to you how money corrupts Congress. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a plan to stop it. Is that clear? Okay. So here's the how. We've got to begin by a little bit of brainwashing to get you to think about this in the way I want you to think about this. And I'm going to do this through a series of stories. The first is familiar to many of you here because you were in the middle of this fight with me. It's a fight around the issue of copyright law, IP. I became an activist in copyright law on October 27, 1998, when President Bill Clinton signed into a law, a statute honoring this great American... <laughs> the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, a statute which extended the term of existing copyrights by 20 years. Now, the question that Congress was supposed to be asking when it passed that statute was whether it advanced the public good to extend the term of an existing copyright by 20 years. Of course, copyrights are important for creating the incentives for people to produce great new creative work. 
But the one thing we know about incentives is that they are prospective. Not even the United States Congress can get George Gershwin to produce anything more. So it couldn't possibly make sense to extend the term of an existing copyright, at least from the perspective of what copyright law is about. And so when we challenged this statute and went to the Supreme Court and got a whole bunch of economists to sign a brief saying this could make no sense, we got this liberal economist, oh, and I'm sorry, that's Milton Friedman, right-wing Nobel Prize-winning economist, to sign the brief, but he said he would only sign the brief if the word no-brainer was in the brief. <laughs> So obvious was it that you couldn't advance the public good by extending the term of an existing copyright. But apparently there were no brains in this place <laughs> when Congress unanimously extended the term of existing copyrights. What there was was a whole bunch of money from interests that benefited from having their special monopoly extended, the public good be damned. And while we're on the IP story, let's talk about another example. I'm sure a certain terror came across many of you today, as you saw on your Wikipedia site. <laughs> that we're going to lose Wikipedia and a whole bunch of other fantastic sites tomorrow in the name of fighting for internet freedom. A fight against Pippa and SOPA and whatever else you want to call out there going on in the ah uh, universe from Congress. Statutes which Congress are enacting or trying to enact or dancing around about whether they're going to enact so that more campaign money comes in, dancing and singing about trying to advance the interest they have in continuing to protect intellectual property. Now, what is this statute about? Well, here is SOPA. SOPA has a very clear objective. Its objective is to promote prosperity, creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation by combating the theft of U.S. property and for other purposes. <laughs> and it does this by giving federal courts the power to shut down websites that engage in enable or facilitate copyright infringement. Now, I get the first one, those who engage in copyright infringement, but just think about those sites that enable or facilitate copyright infringement. We could call those sites the Internet. <laughs> so here's a statute to give federal judges the powers to shut down the Internet. How do they actually go about this? Basically, somebody comes in and asks them, says, here's a site we believe is engaging in this illegal criminal activity. We want you to shut it down. No hearing, no need to give any notice, no need to actually prove beyond just the allegation in the context of somebody having a chance to respond. That leads some people to say, isn't that a prior restraint? The sort of thing that the Constitution was originally designed to avoid in the First Amendment? Lawrence Tribe at Harvard said, yep, that's exactly what it is, a prior restraint, which is why he is leading a bunch of law professors against this statute. What about the First Amendment, people say? Well, I hit the First Amendment in the context of copyright when I argued the case in the Supreme Court trying to limit the term of the Copyright Term Extension Act. Justice O'Connor, after I raised the First Amendment argument, responded to me like this. She said, 
If you say that the copyright clause is not violated, I don't think there are examples where this court has then resorted to First Amendment analysis to invalidate the same act, the famous copyright exception to the First Amendment, which of course reigns in all sorts of context in our jurisprudence. All of these factors together should get us to recognize this is a pretty extraordinary law. And it's led many people to say, whether it advances innovation, it's also going to kill a whole bunch of innovation because of the uncertainty and insecurity that it's adding into the internet. So, sure this statute was proposed to combat theft of U.S. property, but if these people are right, it's not really a statute about any of those things. So what is it a statute about? And I remind you now of the other purposes. <laughs> I don't know what the statute's about. Here's what I do know. Maplight, fantastic organization in Berkeley, which tracks the relationship between money and politics, has this to say about the statute. If you support this statute, you get 13 times as much money in campaign contributions from those who support this statute as if you oppose it. Here's another IP example, IP3, let's call this. It's another statute just introduced last month. This is the Research Works Act, a statute introduced bipartisan statute by Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, and Daryl Isaac, a Republican from California. This statute was inspired by a practice the NIH adopted of requiring that government-funded research, government-funded research, let's just be clear, government-funded research be available 12 months after it's published to be downloaded for free, for free. You know, in the very weird sense of free, right? We paid for this research, right? That's the whole point, government-funded research. Here's the way it works. We, the people, take our money and give it to the governments, the government then gives it to the NIH. The NIH then buys the research, and that's the sense in which we get this for free when the NIH says we're going to turn it over to the public after 12 months for free. That's the condition of taking the money and publishing the research. Now, some publishers don't like this. <laughs> this Dutch publisher, Elsevier, they don't like this. They're really into the business model of the market, where they have exploited the power that they have in academic journals to raise the price of academic journals over the past period of time much higher than inflation by far. They enjoy that market, and that market doesn't do too well when the government mandates that you must hand out after 12 months these articles for free. So they went to their friends, Mr. Isa and Ms. Maloney, in Congress, that's Maloney, not Baloney. That's Maloney in Congress. And they got them to introduce this bill. And this bill bans the NIH from acquiring this policy. And it bans any government agency from conditioning giving money on making the work publicly available. It bans open access. Why does it ban open access? Well, Ms. Maloney wrote a piece on a blog uh, in response to a letter so that it saves American jobs <laughs> on the well-known economic theory that if you 
tax people twice, you get more jobs, right? Because we're taxing people once to raise the money to pay for the research, and now we're taxing them again to get access to it. So double taxation increases jobs. Or here's another great argument. To advance the public interest in the important peer review publishing system. Um, Congresswoman, peer review is done for free. People for free peer review articles. You don't need money to cover the peer review costs. That's what the Public Library of Science here in San Francisco has demonstrated again and again. So what explains this law banning us from getting for free what we paid for? I don't know. I don't have a clue. I don't begin to understand it. But here's what MapLite tells me. You got 6.1 times the amount of money if you support this bill as if you oppose this bill. And indeed, Congresswoman Maloney has gotten 40% of the contributions from Elsevier and Elsevier executives. 40% of their contributions have gone to her. Here's another example, another IP example, but not intellectual property. Let's talk about broadband for a second. So, just in case you were wondering, broadband in America sucks. <laughs> it's a technical term, but that's the fact. It sucks. Here we are on advertised download speeds, but any number of these OECD graphs, we'd be about the same. Like, way down there with Spain, right? With Spain. All right, so the question we have in our future is whether this is a picture of broadband for us or whether this is the picture of broadband for us, right? And there are lots of governments struggling with this question, including state governments. So the state of North Carolina, the worst broadband state in the country, bizarrely, I don't understand it, but that's the fact, the worst in the country, had a whole bunch of cities, especially in the research triangle, decide what they wanted to try to do was to launch community broadband where the cities would help support the building of broadband infrastructure so that the 21st century could actually come to North Carolina. And the project proved to be enormously successful. So here's a graph, a little bit hard to understand, but here's, let me just make it simple. Here's the picture. These numbers in the box represent upload and download speeds for these community broadband sites. The size of the bubble is the price. Okay, so... If you paid $85 under this vibrant system, you got 55 megabits upstream and 55 megabits downstream, perfectly symmetrical. And all of these other community ones are way up there on price performance. And all the ones at the bottom are the Time Warner, AT&T, DSL provisions. Okay, so experiments in community innovation proved to be brilliantly successful in bringing fast broadband to North Carolina. Then the legislators in North Carolina saw this problem and decided they were going to deal with it through House Bill H-129 in North Carolina, passed last year and signed into law by a Democratic governor, a bill that makes community broadband essentially banned in North Carolina. Just one more example of state lawmaking that is systematically disabling local communities from doing something about the duopoly that is denying America broadband. Now, why would they do that? Heck if I know. What I know, though, is that there's endless campaign money that went into this fight to get them to do this insane public policy step. Or here's another example. Look at tax code. The Wall Street Journal last year was puzzled at the number of temporary tax provisions in our tax code. 
These temporary tax provisions which expire requiring an extender, leading to what the Wall Street Journal called extender mania. And there it is, it's kind of maniacal, the way it kind of goes up like that. What explains the Wall Street Journal, this ex says, this explosion in extenders? Well, it turns out Ronald Reagan gave us our first temporary tax provision, and it was a good idea. 1981, in the, in the Tax Reform Act package of 1981, there's the Research and Development Tax Credit. And when this was proposed, Democrats said it would never work. Republicans said, of course it would work. They struck a deal. They said they would make it temporary for the purpose of testing it. And after a period of time, they asked the question, did it work? They asked economists on both sides. And economists on both sides says it did work. All economists agreed it was a really fantastic tax credit idea. It spurred a kind of investment that wouldn't otherwise have been uh, uh, spurred, and therefore it made sense to be part of our tax code, absolutely. But here's the puzzle. It is to this day temporary. It's a temporary part of our tax code. Why is that? Well, Rebecca Kaisar, in this article in the Georgia Law Review, has her theory. She says, the principal recipients of the research credit are large U.S. manufacturing corporations. These business entities are more than willing to invest in lobbying activities and campaign donations to ensure continuance of this large tax savings. The Institute for Policy Innovation Tax Bites had a little bit more direct way of putting it. The cycle has repeated for years. Congress allows the credit to lapse until another short extension is given, preceded, of course, by a series of fundraisers and speeches about the importance of nurturing innovation. Congress essentially uses this cycle to raise money for re-election, promising industry more predictability the next time around. Now, the point to recognize is this dynamic is central to the way Washington increasingly works. We architect our tax policy, at least in part, to make it easier to raise campaign funds. Not revenue for the treasury, but revenue for the campaign treasuries. And it's not just tax policy. When Al Gore was vice president, he had an idea, his team had an idea, to deregulate a significant chunk of the communications infrastructure to support broadband development. Deregulation way below even network neutrality requirements. His team took the idea to the Hill, and the guy who was running the idea told me the response from the Hill was this. They said, hell no. If we deregulate these guys, how are we going to raise money from them? So... We tax, in part, to raise campaign funds. We regulate, in part, to raise campaign funds. Campaign funds at the core of these crucial fiscal decisions that our government makes. Or one other very familiar example. Think about Wall Street. Of course, we've just seen this collapse, which brought down an economy. What is responsible for this collapse? Well, as Simon Johnson and James Quack describe in this book, 13 Bankers, it's this perverse mix of both too little government and too much government. Too little government in the form of deregulation. The 1990s saw all sorts of financial innovations, what we call derivatives. But because of a mania around deregulation, these innovations were effectively invisible to the marketplace. The kind of regulations that traditionally apply to stocks and bonds requiring transparency and that they're traded on a public exchange and that anti-fraud requirements, those regulations didn't attach to derivatives. 
because lawmakers changed the rules to guarantee they wouldn't attach to derivatives. So as my colleague Frank Partner calculated, in 1980, he said, 98% of the assets traded in our economy were traded in these public exchanges through these transparent requirements that had anti-fraud obligations attached to the trades. But by 2008, 90% of the assets traded in this market were traded invisibly without any public trading obligation or transparency obligation, not even an obligation to live up to anti-fraud requirements. A shadow banking market emerged, and because nobody knew what was out there, it effectively encouraged the bubble which, of course, when it burst, brought down this economy. Now, but that wasn't alone enough, according to Quack and Johnson. In addition to too little government, there was too much government. Throughout the 1990s, the government gave a clear beacon signal to Wall Street that there was an effective government guarantee when this bubble burst, a government guarantee in the form of a bailout on the other side producing what is certainly the dumbest form of socialism in the history of man, we socialize the risk, but privatize the benefit. They got the upside, we got the downside. Now, I know this is not an audience of lawyers, so I apologize for this technical legal term, but this is an insanely stupid way to regulate a financial system. And why do we do it like that? Now, that stupidity was all before 2008. It can't begin to compete with the stupidity after 2008. Because after 2008, after we have had the worst crisis since the Depression, after we've seen this crisis destroy an economy, our Congress essentially adds insult to injury here. Because after this damage has been done, after people independent of Wall Street who analyzed Wall Street attributed the, the damage to the failure to regulate these derivatives in an appropriate way. People on the left and people on the right, Judge Richard Posner, conservative federal judge from the Seventh Circuit, in two books, attributes, attributes it directly to this failure to regulate. After the dean of deregulation, Alan Greenspan, confessed in testimony to Congress that it was a mistake he made to believe that the banks would be acting in the public interest as opposed to their private interest. After all of this, still, Wall Street had the power to blackmail our government, Democrats and Republicans alike, to basically get a get-out-of-jail-free card and to leave the instability that led to this collapse still in place. If the banks were too big to fail before 2008, they are only too bigger to fail after 2008. Now, what is it that explains this stupidity? Heck if I know. But one thing I know is that the explosion in campaign cash from this financial sector was unmatched anywhere in our economy. And indeed, in 2010, the largest chunk of contributions come from the financial service sector. And one final example. I'm sure many of you, when you saw Deepwater Horizon images, had this question that I had too, which is, how was it that we had this extraordinary experimental drilling technology that was permitted without extensive environmental impact and risk studies? I mean, after all, where I come from now, 
sad I can't say I come from here anymore, but I come from now. We've just gone through nine years and 10,000 pages of environmental impact studies to permit this green energy project to go forward. So how much analysis was done of the Deepwater Horizon before it was allowed to drill its extraordinarily deep drill? The answer is 17 pages of environmental impact analysis before they were exempted from any further environmental analysis obligations. Now, when Congress heard about this, Congress, of course, was shocked. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Yet, of course, it was Congress that had required these fast-track approval processes, and that leads us to ask the obvious question, why would they lead fast-track approval process, even with these experimental technologies? And the answer is, heck, if I know this is the only thing we know for certain is the endless cash into campaigns that drove to precisely this regulatory structure. Endless cash, again. Now, here's the point. No respectable liberal or libertarian or conservative could defend these cases. Each of them is an abomination from each of these political philosophies. So how did they become part of our government policy structure? Political scientists actually are kind of uncertain. They say it's really complex to answer all of this. But here's the thing I'm quite certain of. I'm quite certain you believe you know. All I have to do is point to the money. All I have to do is point to the money, and you believe you know the root cause to this craziness. And my claim is, number one, it is because of cases like this that Americans believe, quote, money buys results in Congress. 75% of Americans believe money buys results in Congress. A little bit more Democrats than Republicans, but I guarantee you before the Republicans took over, it was just as many Republicans as Democrats. So whether it's two-thirds or three-fourths, here's the one thing we all agree about. Money buys results in Congress. And that leads to number two. That belief erodes trust in the institution. So last year, Gallup found that 11% of Americans had confidence in Congress. Things were looking up this year. That number was 12%. But then the New York Times reported that actually it's actually 9% of Americans who have confidence in Congress. 9%, right? Put that in some context. If in 1974 the federal government had somehow done a survey of the Soviet Union and found that 15% of Soviet citizens had confidence in the Soviet government, we would have declared victory. Communism was obviously dead. The government had no confidence of its people, 15%. But we have 9%. It is certainly the case that there was more support for the British crown in our government at the time of the revolution than there is support for our Congress today. And that leads number three, low trust erodes participation. Rock the Vote, extraordinary organization that turned out the largest number of young voters in the last election, arguably, actually, absolutely certain that they produced the election of Barack Obama, found that in 2010, a significant number of their people were not going to turn out and vote. So they asked them why. The number one reason by far, two to one over the second highest reason was, quote, no matter who wins, corporate interests will still have too much power and prevent real change. And it's not just kids. The vast majority who could have voted in the last election did not vote in part because of this belief. That's point one. Money here erodes trust. Now you might ask, well, is that all it does? 
Is it the only thing it does? I mean, if it's all that it does is erode trust, maybe we're just wrong. Maybe we shouldn't worry about it because, you know, it's actually not doing any harm. There's no reason to worry that it maybe is screwing things up. So does it do something then other than just erode trust? What does money actually do here? Well, it turns out we can think about this in two ways. What does it do to the substance of what Congress does? And then what does it do to Congress's agenda? And about the substance... There actually is, among political scientists, a little bit of a controversy. I was on a radio show with Bradley Smith, former head of the Federal Elections Commission, and he uttered this on the radio show, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that the money does not play much of a role in what goes on in terms of legislative voting patterns and legislative behavior. The consensus about that among people who have studied it is roughly the same as the consensus among scientists that global warming is taking place. Now, to be clear, Bradley Smith is not a global warming skeptic. He is a corruption skeptic. I was so astonished by this, I had to tweet it at the time, and I got a lot of trouble for my hashtag, but that just means Bradley Smith. That's what that stands for. Uh, so what is the evidence here that results actually are driven by the money? Well, it turns out there's an increasing amount of statistical work that's trying to demonstrate statistically and powerfully the connection between contributions and influence. But I find the most compelling is this work by Martin Guilens from Princeton, who looked at 1,781 public opinion surveys. And these public opinion surveys track the attitudes of people, and of course, because they were well-done surveys, you could see the attitudes of people as a function of whether you were the rich or the rest of us. And what Guilens then did is he looked at 887 of these surveys where what the top group, 10% of us, wanted was different from what the rest of us, 90% of us, wanted. And he asked the question, when 10% want to go left and 90% want to go right, which way does Congress go? And this is what he found. I find that when Americans with different income levels differ in their policy preferences, actual policy outcomes strongly reflect the preferences of the most affluent, but bear virtually no relationship to the preferences of the poor or middle-income Americans. A vast discrepancy exists between what our Congress would be doing if our Congress were following what the people wanted and what our Congress does, given our Congress follows what the most affluent want. Now, you could say, well, the most affluent are just the smartest, the most educated. And as a professor, I'd love to believe that if it were true. But it turns out, sad to confess, the most affluent are not the best educated. They're not the wisest. This is not government doing wise public policy choices. This is government following what the richest in our society want. And guess what? They are also the people giving the most to the campaigns. So that's substance. What about agenda? Here the argument's a little bit easier, and so this claim that it doesn't affect legislative behavior is just absolutely false. Here's a way to see it. If I asked you, what was the number one issue in the first four months of 2011 that Congress spent its time dealing with. You know, we're in the middle of two wars at that period, huge unemployment problem. We had a budget crisis coming up. There still was a lot to do in healthcare. So what was the number one issue that they spun their wheels dealing with? The answer is the bank swipe fee controversy. The bank swipe fee controversy dominated the congressional agenda. 
Now, what was that controversy? You might have missed it. I know you were busy the first four months of last year. The bank swipe fee controversy is the question whether when you swipe your debit cards, banks get to charge more or retailers get to pay less. That's the controversy, right? A lot of money on the table. Swipe fees um, are an extraordinarily lucrative industry for some, and they spent an enormous amount of time dealing with this issue because, as this Huffington Post piece put it, the clock never ticks down to zero in Washington. One year's law is the next year's repeal target. Politicians showered with cash from card companies and giant retailers alike have been moving back and forth between camps paid handsomely for their shifting allegiances. And then again, it dawns on you, shocked you should be if you have any faith in our system, that the very agenda Congress sets, the things they work on versus things they don't work on, is driven as well by the desire to raise money. So why don't we address the unemployment issue? Turns out it doesn't pay so well in campaign fundraising to address unemployment. Okay, so this is point two. Money distorts what our Congress does. It distorts the issues they work on and it distorts the results relative to the baseline of what the results would be if, in fact, they were following what we, the people, wanted. But is it corruption? After all, the Supreme Court, in a decision that will become a toddler in just two days, the Citizens United decision, concluded that independent expenditures, what we now know as super PAC type expenditures, including those made by corporations, do not give rise to corruption or the appearance of corruption. So if they don't give rise to the appearance of corruption, is what I've described here corruption? Because I have not said anybody is guilty of bribery. I have not said anybody made any quid pro quo. I have not said anybody has violated any federal law. So have I described corruption? Well, with all due respect to the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court says here is totally wrong. We have very precise measures in the law, and I can show you exactly what totally wrong is, but it is totally wrong. It's about this much wrong. This is plainly corruption. I have my blackboard here to prove it. Plainly corruption, and here's how you can see it. The framers of our Constitution gave us what they called a republic. But what they meant by a republic was a representative democracy. And what they meant by a representative democracy, as Federalist 52 describes, is a democracy where there'd be a branch of government which ought to be, quote, dependent upon the people alone. So here's the model of government. We have the people. We have the government. I do my own slides. It's really cool the way that bounces like that, right? So people, governments, it's kind of marionette relationship. Dependency is clear and exclusive. Here's the problem. Congress has evolved a different dependence. It's not just dependence upon the people, it's increasingly dependence upon the funders. As members spend between 30 and 70 percent of their time raising money to get back to Congress or to get their party back into power, they develop a sixth sense, a constant awareness about how what they might do will affect their ability to raise money. They become, in the words of the X-Files, shapeshifters constantly adjusting themselves in light of what they know will raise money. Not on issue 1 to 10, but on issue 11 to 2,444. Leslie Byrne, a Democrat from Virginia, describes that when she went to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green 
And then to clarify, she went on, he was not an environmentalist. <laughs> Now the point is, this is a dependence too. And it is a different and conflicting dependence from a dependence upon the people alone because, surprise, surprise, the funders turn out not to be the people. 0.26% of Americans give more than $200 in a congressional campaign. 0.05% of Americans max out in a congressional campaign. 0.01%, one out of a thousand Americans, give more than $10,000 to all candidates in a congressional cycle. So the Occupy Wall Street people are so proud of the we are the 99%, bad marketing, right? We're either the 99.74% or the 99.95% or the 99.99% who don't have the power that the 0.26 or 0.05 or 0.01% have because they are funding the campaigns. Now, this is absolutely clear. This is corruption. It is not corruption. Yeah, you should clap for that. That's really important. Let the Supreme Court hear. It is not the corruption of money secreted in brown paper bags handed out to members of Congress. You know, there used to be safes in the offices of Congress. Safes. And you think, why would they pay members of Congress in cash? And it turned out they didn't. It's just members found cash on their desk and they needed a safe place to keep it. So they had safes. That doesn't happen anymore. Congress, in that sense, is as clean as it has ever been, and it is very, very clean. It is not an institution filled with the likes of Rob Lagojevich. But even though it's not, this is still a corruption relative to the framers' baseline of a system dependent upon the people alone. They're not. This is a dependence corruption because they have the wrong dependence. It is corruption because they follow the funders, at least in places where the funders conflict with what the people want. That, my friends, is how money corrupts. The wrong dependency distorts the work and weakens the trust of the institution. That's how this institution gets bent. So what's a plan for doing something about it? A plan. Okay, well, let's step back, start with zero here. Recall the sacred text. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil. Henry David Thoreau, 1846, on Walden. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the roots. Let's call that one a root striker. I tried to convince John Stewart of that. He said, no, 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 Batman would be better. But okay, put it aside. Root striker. One striking at the root. Now, here's the problem. The problem is not that we have an institution filled with Blagojeviches. The problem is the system, not evil souls. And so the solution is not to lock up all sorts of people in Congress. Some we should, Blagojevich we should, but that's not going to solve the problem. We solve the problem with a Thoreauvian insight. We solve the problem by stopping our persistent pattern of hacking at all the different branches of evil and spend a cycle or two striking at the root. If the systemic problem here is that the funders are not the people, the systemic solution is to find a way to make the funders the people. 
to give them away. I know that looks like one word. I don't mean to give Congress away. I know a lot of people would like to do that. But I mean, give them a way to fund without Faust, without selling their souls, and therefore without alienating America because America believes they've sold their souls for a tiny bit of money. And the one way to do this, and I think increasingly the only way to do this, is finally as a people to commit firmly and openly to the need for publicly funding public elections. We have to replace a system of large dollar-funded campaigns with small dollar-funded campaigns. And we can follow the model of states that have experimented like Arizona or Maine or Connecticut to opt into systems where candidates need to take small dollar contributions only and through a variety of different tricks those contributions then get amplified so they can afford to run winning campaigns never taking large donations. Now there are many ways to do this. In my book Republic comma lost, really poetic, right? Republic comma lost, I describe one that I call the Grant and Franklin Project. It looks something like this. You first have to stipulate with me that every American contributes, at least contributes in quotes, $50 to the federal treasury. Not an income tax necessarily, but in some form of taxes. So under the proposal that I have, I say let's take that first $50 you contribute and let's rebate it in the form of democracy voucher. And a candidate can get this democracy voucher from you. You can give it to a candidate or to any number of candidates if that candidate agrees to, number one, fund his or her campaign only with democracy vouchers plus contributions limited to $100 a citizen, Grant and Franklin. So you fund your campaigns with small dollar contributions only. And if you don't allocate the money, if somebody doesn't allocate their voucher, then we can allocate it to the parties or in states like California where most people are not a member of parties, it can go into some democracy-supporting entity. All right, now, $50 a voter is $7 billion. The total amount raised in 2010 was $1.8 billion. So this is three times the total amount raised in 2010, not even counting the $100 contributions. It is real money that would make funding elections in this small-dollar way possible and effective and make it possible for candidates to opt into a world where they didn't have to take the large contributions to fund their campaign. But would it be enough to clean the system? I used to believe it would. Two years ago, I thought it would. And even after the Supreme Court decided Citizens United, I was not yet convinced that that would change the fact that public funding alone would be enough. But I now believe that public funding alone is not enough. We've entered the age of the super PAC. Not just the happy super PACs, <laughs> but the very dark super PACs. And we've seen it, that's Tony Soprano in case you don't recognize, okay. So we've entered this kind of super PAC dynamic, which actually political scientists have not begun to model, but which is absolutely driving the way Washington functions today. Evan Bayh, who retired from the United States Senate, described this to me on a panel that I was sitting with him on. He said, the biggest fear that incumbents now have, remember incumbents, the people who had no fear in the past, the people who were guaranteed re-election, who had all the money in the world, who had super poll numbers, incumbents were in power. The biggest fear incumbents now have is that 30 days out from an election, some super PAC's going to come in and drop a million dollars in the district. 
And so what is the incumbent supposed to do? Because by definition, if that happens, he can't turn to his largest contributors. They've maxed out. So who can he turn to? The only people he can turn to is super PACs on his side. But it's a little late to do that at the last moment. So what he's got to do is buy super PAC insurance in advance. So that if some bomb gets dropped on your side against you, you have somebody who's willing to drop a bomb against them. So how do you buy super PAC insurance? Well, they don't have many of those left anymore, but that would have been an idea before. But now you buy your insurance the way you buy any insurance. You have to pay your premium in advance. How do you pay your premium in advance? Well, the super PAC says things like, we'd love to help you, Senator, but we can only support people who support us at at least 80%, according to our charter. So without even spending $1, the super PACs are able to induce congressmen and senators to behave exactly how they want them to behave so that if they get attacked, they have a reliable protection racket that can step forward and answer on the other side. So the incumbents are no longer the barons. The incumbents are the vassals, vassals to barons who run these super PACs, radically shifting the dynamic of power inside of Washington, which means here, I think, that we're going to need much more than just public funding. What we're going to need as well is an amendment to the Constitution. Now, I know a lot of people are really anxious about this. A lot of people have really uh, a lot of faith in what our framers of our Constitution did. They, of course, they had no mistakes at all. So how could they have made a mistake here? And I just want to, you know, allay your concerns. I've actually done my own research and discovered that there's a forgotten amendment that the framers actually did pass. Um, We just have to get it re-ratified. It goes something like this. All that we need to do is to reaffirm what they said 240 years ago. Congress shall have the power to limit but not to ban and independent political expenditures within 90 days of an election. That amendment, which says you can't silence anybody, nobody should be silenced, whether it's corporations or foreigners or dolphins, everybody should be allowed to put their position out there, but Congress has to have the ability to make sure that they can't so dominate the process that everybody wonders whether they're shape-shifting now for the independent expenditures just like they're shape-shifting for the contributions. That amendment is an essential part of the reform we need. What we need then is these two things, public funding and a limit on these independent expenditures to produce what we might imagine dream of as a trustworthy Congress. And if we had those two, if we had a world where small dollar contributions were the only thing driving campaigns, then we all could believe, as we all want to believe, that when Congress does something idiotic, it's either because there's too many Democrats or because there are too many Republicans, but not because of the money, because we would have set up a condition where trust was possible because the thing that leads us to mistrust would have been removed if we can produce that system. All right, now, how would we get there? Because I don't think it's hard to see the problem I don't even think it's hard to describe a solution. What's hard, what may be impossibly hard here, is to imagine the political movement that brings that solution about. And the reason this is so hard 
There's a reason suggested to me by Congressman Jim Cooper, the Democrat from Tennessee, a man who's been in Congress as long as all but about 20 other members of Congress. And in describing how this institution changed, Cooper said to me, the problem with Congress is that Congress, Capitol Hill, has now become a, quote, farm league for K Street. K Street, where all the lobbyists work. So what he means by that is that members and staffers and bureaucrats inside the Beltway have an increasingly common business model, a business model focused on their life after government, their life as lobbyists. Public Citizen calculated between 1998 and 2004, 50% of senators left to become lobbyists, 42% of members of the House, and those numbers have only gone up. Everybody inside of the system depends upon the system surviving and if that's true, how could we ever imagine the political movement that would change this system and deny a significant number of them their retirement plan because they won't be million-dollar lobbyists? And so here's then the challenge. To find a way around this cancer that has become our governments in D.C. And the first step to doing this is to recognize that Political issues are not just divided between left and right in America. That's not the most important division. The critical division that is increasingly make it, making itself known is the division between inside and outside government. Yeah, well, there's the outsider. Okay, you guys, we're going to join with that outsider in a minute. This is the key. What we need to do is to enable what we could call outsider politics, which means not some top-down, organized structure for taking over the government, but this grassroots, bottom-up structure. Not a politics filled with politicians, but a politics filled with people who swear off becoming politicians but are citizens. Not a professional politics, but an amateur politics, in the sense of an amateur, not someone who's doing something for the money but for the love of what they're doing. These are people who are doing something not for the power but for the love of the nation. Not the kind of read-only politics that governed politics in the 20th century, but instead a kind of read-write politics where people are active and engaged and awoken. A politics where the sovereign, us, has, is awake and can take the power back that we need to fix the damage that they've done. That's outsider politics. Now, this outsider politics needs to do two incredibly different th difficult things at the same time. Number one, it has to figure out how to be cross-partisan. That doesn't mean giving up the political commitments of one side or another, but it means figuring out how two radically different perspectives might be able to agree, not on a common end, but a common enemy. And I think that's possible if this cross-partisan movement focuses not on the substantive fights we might have, but on the rules of the game, the conditions within which the system operates that leads us to believe that it's a fair or trustworthy system or not. Now, both of these are extremely hard to do, extremely hard to be disciplined about either of these. The cross-partisanship is difficult because always it's the other side who's the enemy, the evil ones, 
the right is the enemy or the left is the enemy. That's what gets us going. That's what makes this fun. And focus on rules is boring because the passion is in the substance, equality, or fighting for a just society, or some smaller tax, whatever you want to fight for, that's where it's exciting. The rules are not exciting except to rules geek, rule geeks like me. But the point is, both of these kinds of commitments are necessary because what we need here is constitutional change to happen. And in our system, constitutional change only happens if three quarters of the states agree. 75% of the states have to line up between any such change. Now, we've seen the beginnings of such a politics in the United States, but I think these beginnings have failed. So, move on, I think, is the first kind of rustling to this. They launched in 1998 to bring sense to the insanity of a system that was focusing impeachment on a man who slept with his assistant and lied about it. Move on said, are you kidding? This is the most important problem. Let's censure the man and move on. But quickly the movement fell to become a movement on the left, not cross-partisan anymore, but a movement on the left. And the Tea Party, too, was born first as outsiders claiming to be reformers, but very quickly became insiders on the right. And even the Occupy movement, which was born first as outsiders on the left, surprising everyone, exciting an extraordinary range of Americans, standing for ideas that Americans hadn't heard articulated in 20 years, but they, too, quickly became aloof from a political movement demanding and affecting real change. Now, I think that if these different movements can be brought about to point in a certain direction, to find a way to speak really for a 99%, and to focus in ways that could make change possible, then these movements could begin to bring about the recovery of this republic, comma, lost. That is a plan. Now, here's the thing. We don't know whether it's even possible for this democracy to succeed in this. It's not clear. We haven't done it in a long time, in 100 years. It's not clear we have the power. But I think what we do know is how such a plan starts. It starts, number one, with a certain kind of clarity. It starts with the clarity of Thoreau. It starts with the clarity of the root striker, pointing to a common ground. The common ground here is corruption and getting people to recognize the common ground from either side of the political perspective. So pick your issue on the right or the left and begin to connect it and link them together. So whether it's healthcare reform on the left or government bailouts on the right, or global warming on the left, or complex taxes on the right, or financial reform on the left, or financial reform on the right. The point is to get people to recognize there is a root cause to the systemically misfiring government, and this is its picture. A government focused not upon us, but upon the funders. And root strikers need to convince and to get we the people to see this so that we the people can act in this outsider politics way to change it. And second, it needs a certain kind of courage. So there's a man, Arnold Hyatt, very shy guy. This is the biggest picture I could find of him on the internet. 
he was the president of StrideRight, made great shoes like Keds. He's also a loyal Democrat. 1996, he was the second largest contributor to the Democratic Party. So Bill Clinton, in 1997, invited him to a dinner at the Mayflower Hotel with about 30 other fat cats to talk about what Clinton should do in the remaining uh, years of his second term. Each of these contributors was asked to stand up and speak. We don't have any photographs from the event, um, uh, but I kind of picture Arnold standing and looking something like this as he addressed the president. And he said this to the president, something like, Mr. President, I know you're an admirer of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, so I want you to put yourself in Roosevelt's shoes in 1940, when Roosevelt recognized that he needed to convince a reluctant nation to wage a war to save democracy. He said, you too, Mr. President, you too must convince a reluctant nation to wage a war to save democracy. Not a war against fascists, but a war against a certain attitude that comes from us fat cats. An attitude that says merely because we are rich, we are entitled to direct government policy. Merely because we've been successful in the marketplace, we have the right to get the president on the other end of the phone. Merely because we are powerful in one sphere, we are entitled to be powerful in another. People who have succeeded in convincing America that democracy doesn't work. Now put yourself in Hyatt's shoes as he's surrounded by his friends, these fat cats, and he's just called these fat cats out as the problem with American democracy. As you can imagine, there was a little bit of silence after he spoke in that room. The only published account of the evening said that Clinton's response effectively slashed Hyatt to pieces, humiliating him in front of the group. Now, 15 years later, it's time we recognize that Arnold Hyatt was right. It is time we convince a reluctant nation to wage a war to save democracy. But where Arnold Hyatt was wrong was in his belief that it would be politicians that would wage that war. It won't be politicians. It'll be citizens. It'll be us. It'll be root strikers. I hope it will be you. It is our job. It requires our courage because it's our republic that we have lost. Ours and not theirs. They took it away. We let them. And let me just end with one other link. So this is an extraordinary foundation, Long Now. But I want you to recognize the way in which thinking about the long term is also a story about recognizing responsibility. So... 1989, I'm sure many of you recognize, remember this event when a ship under the command of Captain Joseph Hazelwood ran aground in Prince William Sound and spilled about 11 million gallons of oil into the ocean. This is Captain Hazelwood calling in the accident. Yeah, uh, it's back. Uh, we uh, should be on the radar there. We've touched up... Uh, Island, uh, Boy Reef. And, uh, 
you want uh, so you're notified over. <laughs> now, I'm sure many of you ask, are asking yourself the question which was immediately on everyone's mind after the accident, whether Captain Hazelwood was intoxicated when he was captaining a supertanker. He denied it. He said he had only had four vodkas before he got on the ship. His blood alcohol level said he must have been at least six times the legal limit when he got on board. But he and his lawyers fought it. There was a huge litigation around it. He was not absolutely convicted of being intoxicated at the time he was in charge. So let's say there's some doubt. What there's no doubt about is that he had a problem with alcohol. His mother testified that he had a problem with alcohol. 1985, four years before the accident, Exxon treated him for his problem with alcohol. 1989, after the accident, the president said he thought he had mastered his problem. But in 86, he had his driver's license revoked for a DUI. And in 88, the year before the accident, he had had his driver's license revoked for a DUI. At the time he was captaining a super tanker, he was not allowed to drive a VW Beetle. Right Now, again, just forget, though, about Hazelwood here. What I want you to do is to think about those around Captain Hazelwood. The other officers, people who could have picked up a phone. While a drunk was driving a super tanker, I want you to think about people who did nothing. What do we think about them? I ask this in this way because as I think about the problems I've described tonight, I increasingly think that we are they. Our nation faces critical problems requiring serious attention, but we have institutions incapable of that attention, distracted institutions, unable to focus. And who is to blame for that? Who is responsible? It is too easy to focus responsibility on the evil people. It's not just the responsibility of the evil people. It's also the responsibility of the good people, the decent people, the people who could have but didn't pick up a phone. It's the responsibility of us, we, the most privileged, Because the most outrageous part of the problem I've described tonight is that though these are corruptions primed by some of the most privileged, they are permitted by the passivity of the most privileged as well. Permitted. When Franklin was carried from the Constitutional Convention in August 1787, he was stopped by a woman on the street who asked, Mr. Franklin, what have you wrought And Franklin responded, A republic, madam, if you can keep it. A republic, a representative democracy, a government dependent upon the people alone. We have lost that republic. And we all have the responsibility to act to get it back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Hold on. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you. So um, we've had some questions come up. We're going to have some more sure. coming up during the, during the talk. I'm going to actually start with one by Kevin Kelly, which is Kevin asked, are, are there any examples in the rest of the world of this kind of thing working? Yeah, so what's hard about comparing our problem to the rest of the world is that the rest of the world doesn't have the particular mix of free speech regulations that we do. So other governments are allowed to limit the amount of time of a campaign. So they can say a campaign will be a couple months. They're allowed to force television stations to give free airtime. Most mature democracies have robust public funding systems that are funded into parties because most of these robust democracies are parliamentary systems as opposed to our kind of mixed system. So there's so many dimensions along which other countries differ that it's hard to make a fair comparison. Um, uh, but I think that what's striking is that there are countries where you have a government that doesn't spend its time focused obsessively on this question of funding campaigns. So I was, spoke at the Swedish parliament and was taken out to dinner by a bunch of um, members of parliament, including a guy who was a geek, a hacker, literally. I mean, that's what he had done. He had hacked and worked on uh, GNU Linux, and then he became a member of parliament. And he had been parliament, member of parliament for, I can't remember, it was like six or eight years. And he said, I literally have never once asked anybody for money, ever. You know, and you kind of, it was kind of a shock of recognition. How, how, how could that be possible? Imagine a Congress filled with people who didn't ever once have to worry about that part of their life and instead just focused on trying to do what they thought was right. Um, and so I think it's, you know, and we don't how have How do you explain that? I mean, Well, they just um, had developed a recognition of the need to protect against this kind of corrupting influence. And not, you know, most democracies haven't. I just think there are some that have uniquely done it. And, uh, and, and we need so, to follow. So in that case, it's really just a cultural difference or is it a legal difference? No, there's a legal difference because they fund campaigns. They limit uh, the amount of time for a campaign so they don't have a need for an endless campaign. Um, and they recognize that they have to protect the institution from becoming too dependent on a very tiny slice of the society. And they succeeded in doing it. I think, you know, in principle, we should be able to do what the Swedes do in some respects, in some areas of life at least. Yeah, this would be one. Okay, so Halliday asked a, a kind of similar question about America. Are there examples in history yeah. where there have been this kind of grassroots reform of government yeah, there in American have been. history. Yeah, so exactly 100 years ago, the election of 1912 was an extraordinary presidential election. There were four candidates. Um, Eugene Debs from the socialist left, uh, uh, President Taft, William Howard Taft, who was the Stanpat Republican, and then Teddy Roosevelt, who was running on the Bull Moose Party, and Woodrow Wilson. Now, Roosevelt and Wilson both called themselves members of the progressive movement. Because progressive back then didn't mean left-wing. Progressive was a conception of the need to repair the way democracy functioned. Because for the prior 15 years, journalists had done an extraordinarily good job in de demonstrating to America that America was a deeply corrupt democracy. 
and not corrupt in the kind of subtle ways our government is corrupt, but in the old-fashioned, crude, you know, let's just bribe the member of Congress by, you know, paying him $100 or $5,000 or whatever to get him to do what he wants. And America was so, gro- out, you know, so grotesque to see this and see it in many areas, you know, including um, Upton Sinclair's work about the way in which that corruption made it impossible to have safe food and in the way in which the robber barons had stolen huge chunks of America as they built the railroads. This eventually built into a political movement that demanded change, and 70% of Americans voted for one of these two progressive candidates. So 70% of America united behind changing the system. Um, and I think we, in fact, began at that movement a process which did, at the federal level, eliminate that kind of crude quid pro quo corruption. Again, I don't think that is... There are idiots, you know, the Blagojevich types, the Randy Duke Cunninghams, the William Jeffersons, but they are a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. So we succeeded in eliminating that kind of corruption, but then it morphed. It had to find a way to exert its power. It couldn't do it in the old-fashioned, crude way. It now had to do it in a much more sophisticated way, and so it evolved into this more sophisticated kind of corruption. And the question is whether we actually have the capacity to fight that kind of corruption. Because when it's just bribery, that's just plain old evil. And we as a people are pretty good at rallying against evil. But when it's the more subtle legal behavior, uh, you know, gray area that normal people engage in, decent people engage in, it's harder for us to get angry about it. It's harder for us to do anything about it. It might just be the kind of disease, affliction, that we can't actually muster the immune response to. That's the real challenge here. But I do think we succeeded 100 years ago, and 100 is a good number, 100th speech tonight, 100 years later, we should be able to rally again to succeed and and bring about changes again. So in 1913, we ratified two amendments to the Constitution. Uh, The first was the 17th Amendment, which created the income tax, so the robber baron, super rich, would have to bear their, bur- their fair share of the um, uh, payment of the uh, cost of government. The second one was eliminating the appointed Senate because the Senate had become the focus of corruption as uh, it was simplest place to buy your influence was to buy a senator. And the senators were appointed and they became elected after the 17th Amendment. Uh, uh, after the 17th Amendment, 16th Amendment and 17th Amendment. So 1913 was the moment where they celebrated and had these two progressive amendments ratified by three-fourths of the states and, and tried to fix the problem. They thought the problem of corruption would go away. It went away for a while in a certain form, but returned in this much more virulent form. So this actually kind of leads into, there's a whole series of questions that people ask that kind of are about this, the, the money problem is so fundamental. Won't it always find ways of kind of getting around? So, you know, by, you know, outlawing a certain kind of uh, public uh, campaign contribution or a certain kind of pack, you've just sort of put up a wall, but the water goes around it. And we've had lots of questions about that of, you know, yes, you can say, well, you can't, you know, you can't have this particular way of corrupting the system, but there's a big force there that causes uh, corruption and money fundamentally is power in our system. Um, is this a constantly changing game? Is it? Yeah, so um, there is no final solution to this problem. And we constantly have to figure out whether the particular solution we've embraced 
still avoids the kind of corruption we're worried about. The problem, though, is that for the last 30 years, reformers have focused on one type of solution alone. That is the solution of saying no. So they've tried to limit all sorts of campaign contributions, soft money, party money, all sorts of efforts to make it so corporations can't... as, As the sole mode by which reform would be achieved. And when that is the only way in which you try to achieve reform, I think it's obvious that money is going to try to find other ways in and will succeed in finding other ways in. That's why it's essential that we not just think about limits, we also think about supply. Increasing the amount of neutral money or clean money in the system so that it no longer makes sense to be beholden to this special interest money because you've got enough money in the system that is not corrupted in this particular way. So, you know, this is just, you know, this is just a matter of incentives, right? So it's kind of bizarre, counterintuitive thing about this problem. On the one hand, I think most of us believe this is an impossible problem to solve. Um, But you look back at the 20th century, and 20th century took on some pretty hard problems. You know, fascism, beginning the fight to finally end legalized racism, giving women extraordinary tools to deal with sexism. Even conservatives on this Supreme Court have taken up the fight against homophobia. You know, those are hard problems. Those are problems that require generations of work to kind of tear them out of the social fabric and remake people so that they are not racist, sexist, homophobic. You know, those are really hard, but the 20th century took them on. This is a problem which is just about changing incentives. You know, Connecticut, when they changed their public funding system, 80% of elected representatives in the first year opted into the clean money system, 80%. Why? Because nobody has a deep-seated desire to be a vassal to some baron. It's not like it takes generations of DNA that makes us into that. It's just they figured out the simplest way to make money, so raise money. So if we could just change the incentives, I think the problem goes away. So the only, the hard part of the problem is the thing I talked about that Jim Cooper highlighted. If all of the insiders have an interest in preserving the existing system because they think not just about government but also life after government, that's the hard part of this, not the crack. Not the, if you had the right system, would we constantly have the same kind of corruption? I think we could build the right kind of system that would pretty much avoid the kind of grotesque, uh, debilitating corruption that we've got right now. I guess the current system must not be much fun if you're a politician right now. I mean, it seems yeah, and like it's gotten, they, they must be, I mean, they, they must not like being vassals. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's a great opportunity for reform. I mean, and again, the thing I described tonight about the way in which super PACs have taken the incumbent and placed the incumbent in the position of vassal rather than baron is an enormous opportunity and if we could just find a billionaire, are there any billionaires here? I got, I got an email today from somebody who said, have you thought about trying to find a billionaire? Um, yeah, I did think about that. Um, if we could just get a billionaire or a couple billionaires to fund some super PACs that drop a million dollars into 20 Republican Senate seats, you don't have to win. You don't have to beat them. You, you know, it's a kind of political, it's peaceful terrorism, right? It's just terrifying them getting them to wake up to the fact that this is a system where they no longer control, and that's what's necessary to get them to begin to think about reform. So I'm actually optimistic that the instability of the current system 
is going to make possible um, this kind of change. And what I'm most concerned about is that we now focus on the right kind of answer. Because there's all sorts of energy out there about how what we need to do is reverse Citizens United. And as you heard me say, of course, we do need to reverse Citizens United. But we need to remember that on January 20th, 2010, the day before Citizens United was decided, our democracy was already broken. I mean, Citizens United might have shot it, but the body was already cold, right? <laughs> so reversing Citizens United is important, but it's not going to fix this democracy. And we need much more aggressive reform than just simply fixing the mistakes of the Supreme Court. So, so actually, I'm, I'm going to ask a couple about mechanisms of reform that, that people have suggested. John Gilmore um, oh, asked you know, why you're down on ballot initiatives. And uh, he points out that these are a mechanism that are put in for sort of grassroots public reform, but you've spoken disparagingly about them in the past. Yeah, because I'm, so I'm a big believer in uh, the sovereign once the sovereign wakes up. But I think the sovereign likes to sleep. <laughs> and most of us, you know, like to get on with our life. You know, we're not obsessed with politics. We don't want to watch everything that's happening in Sacramento or Washington. We want to raise our kids or have our hobbies or code or whatever. We want to do things. And we don't want to become experts in what the government should be doing. And there are certain times in our history where we've got to put those things down and focus and become the sovereign and do the right thing. And I think when we focus in the right way, I have total confidence in what we would do but I think most of the time we're hopeless at it. But wouldn't this be exactly the kind of thing where a ballot initiative might be useful, where it's not us getting involved in government, it's us okay. getting involved so, in reforming government? Right, so if, the, if, so if John's question is, why don't I like ballot initiatives, it's right. because I lived in California for nine years and saw what happened, right? Um, <laughs> but that's different from saying I don't support the idea of people exercising the power to take back control over this government and, and fix it. Of course I do. Now, it turns out that our Constitution does not permit ballot initiatives to be used to force amendments inside the system. So ballot initiatives couldn't actually force the amendment, but ballot initiatives could be very effective in forcing state legislatures to do the right thing, either in ratifying an amendment or in the other path, which I didn't talk about, but which I think is essential, calling for a constitutional convention that could propose the amendments that Congress would never on its own propose. So... Is, is part of this problem that just the federal government has become too attractive a target? As, I mean, if, if you've got one-stop shopping for all your special interest needs, yeah. then... Yeah, yeah I, you know, so this is where the libertarians are onto something. Um, uh, I'm not a libertarian. I used to be. Uh, I grew up, but I used to be a libertarian. Um, <laughs> but, but where they're onto something is... is you know, as Richard Epstein from Chicago would put it, when you've got such a powerful government that's doing so much, it's um, a constant um, uh, honey jar, honey pot, you know, uh, for people who are interested in trying to find ways to leverage their privilege into special benefits for themselves. And there's all sorts of fantastic data coming out now because transparency about what uh, lobbyists do is being used by political scientists to make a 
tight connection between the amount of money spent on lobbying and the actual return. And the return from lobbying is in the tens of thousands percent for many of these provisions. And so, you know, you're a CEO of some company and your lobbyist comes to you and says, I can guarantee you 300% return on this particular investment. And your actual inventors say, you know, maybe 40 on what we're doing. You as the CEO are going to invest more and more of your money in the lobbying game as opposed to in the widget inventing game. And that's a real problem. Um, but I think where the, lo- where the libertarians um, go wrong is just kind of assuming away the problem. So the libertarians say, you know, Ron Paul says, so the solution here is just to get a small government. You know, it kind of reminds me of, I remember the Steve Martin joke where Steve Martin say, so here's how you can get a million dollars and pay no taxes. First, get a million dollars. You know, and so, so that's the libertarian's point. Sure, if we could get a small government, then we wouldn't have to worry about it. But the point is, if a large government benefits fundraising, makes it easier to fundraise, if complicated taxes makes it easier to fundraise, then how are you ever going to get small government and simple taxes when the very people who need to enact those changes would never enact those changes because it would make the job of raising money for their campaigns 10,000 times more difficult. So you've got to address the incentives of the congressman before we get to the question you know, that they want to ask, which is what's the size or scope or reach of government, if you want that question to be answered on a level playing field. Okay, so let me, let me answer your rhetorical question. I mean, there, for example, there are state governments that would like to have power that the federal government has, and they have the right to pass the constitutional amendment. Yeah, and so there's a big push um, among states to try to reclaim the right to appoint the senator, because if the states controlled one house in Congress, then the states could protect themselves more effectively against the federal government. Yeah, so I, and, and this, you know, we could go on, this is the stuff I do for a real living, you know, I'm a constitutional law professor, it's endlessly complicated, interesting junk. Um, uh, uh, but I think that all of that is, you know, secondary to the primary problem. So I, what I'm talking about is what, whether you think that reform is necessary or not, what is the sequence of reform we need? Like, what is the first change? Um, because I, I really think until we get this problem solved, there's no other problem we're going to be able to solve. Um, yeah, but I guess the, the argument would be that, you know, the, the money going to where the power is is a symptom of, of the centralization of power. Yeah. So it might even be a deeper root. It, it might be a deeper root, but again, and I'm, I'm, I'm conceding the, the root, Right. But then the question is, do you actually have a means to attacking that route, right? So I'm trying to solve the first thing that gives us those means. So Vint Surfass, would term limits help? So I also, I used to be a believer in term limits and then lived in California. Um, uh, you know, and I think that the, the problem with term limits is that I think in Sacramento, the only people who know how to do anything are the lobbyists, because everybody else is a kind of amateur who's just kind of, you know, working their way through. And, and that, you know, the problem in government is not the genuine public servant who wants to spend a career in government. You know, Tom Lantos was my congressman here, um, who, you know, was a foreign-born American, so he was never going to be president. He was not there for anything other than just serving, and he served for a long time. Um, and, uh, and that kind of public service is something, I think, which is not the problem. I think the problem is when they are focused on the way that they can leverage public service into private benefit, 
or they are focused on ways to leverage public benefit to make it possible to get reelected. So if we solve that problem, I wouldn't have any problem with people serving as long as the people elect them. Now, there are people out there who say, well, let's do a deal. Let's say term limits plus campaign finance reform. And I kind of, you know, I kind of think maybe unnecessary, but I'm happy to strike any deal that gets us to public funding. But I don't think that actually the problem is the terms. I think the problem is the funding. So you also identified another problem there, which is the complexity of the system. And, you know, there is a sort of fundamental information asymmetry in sort of special interest issues, which is that the special interest has the capacity to track the details of all the legislative votes and amendments and things like that on their special interests, whereas the rest of us can't possibly attract, I mean, even um, most, most members of Congress can't really track all of that detail. And they, really? Uh, <laughs> even their staff can't track it. So they end up uh, actually just focusing on their issues. Mm -hmm. And, and so is, is there anything we could do about, you know, that, um, that sort of fundamental, there's a lot of, I, I guess there's kind of a cult of transparency these days that sort of suggests that more information, more exposure of information is sort of fundamentally good. And I wonder if you uh, subscribe to that cult or not. Yeah, so um, uh, I went through a really serious self-destructive stage just after I left California. I think it was related. I, I didn't realize this was going to get so personal. Yeah, well, I, you, you primed it. Um, <laughs> where I wrote three articles that kind of alienated me from all of my friends. So one of them was an article that was originally going to be titled The Tyranny of Tiny Minds. It was an attack on the Obama administration. Um, the second was an article about... Um, it's called A Love of Culture. It was critical of Google and their book search settlement. Uh, and the third was an article titled uh, Against Transparency. Um, so all of my transparency friends were like outraged that I could write something against transparency. Um, and I, I, my shrink and I have worked out what caused all of that. Um, <laughs> but but there, is, there was actually something, I, I think there is something to think about with the transparency point. Now, you know, the sort of thing that uh, Tim O'Reilly does, or the sort, the sort of thing that you know, government transparency people are doing that's trying to get all the government data we can out there in machine-readable form so people can do all sorts of stuff with it. That is un unambiguously good, in my view. Um, but what I'm skeptical of is people who believe that we solve the problem I'm talking about merely by making everything transparent. You know, so I serve on MapLite's board. MapLite's a fantastic organization building all sorts of great tools to track the relationship between money and results to make it trivially easy for everybody to see this connection. And of course, I think that's good and important. But we also have to recognize the consequence of that. The consequence of that is just to prove to people what they already believed, which is money buys results in Congress. And if all you're trying to do is to make it clearer that money drive, um, uh, um, buys results in Congress, um, uh, then you forget, you forget the central San Francisco uh, slogan, you got to give them hope, right? You got to give them hope, right? If they're convinced that the system is corrupted, then they're just going to stay home and play with their kids or do whatever else they can do. So that's why you've got to tie transparency to some real reform, right? So, you know, with the Deepwater Horizon, of course, it was a great thing that there was a webcam underwater showing us the muck spewing into the Gulf. But it's just a confusion to think that that's all we wanted was a webcam, like a high-def webcam, seeing this. You know, what we wanted is the sludge to stop spewing into the Gulf. And that's the same thing here. 
We want transparency so that we can get a clean system of government. So, um, Rania Cohen has, has asked you to please mention something about the California Clean Money Campaign. Yeah, so there's been a campaign for a long time that should have been much more successful, not because of people's not hard work, but there's very powerful interests that are blocking it, um, that has tried in a stepwise to pick particular offices that they are likely to succeed um, uh, and try to get those things passed uh, first as a way to set an example for others. And, um, and I've supported, I think that's extremely important. Um, uh, and I, you know, and, and anything that happens locally, you know, so for example, in San Francisco, there was a very effective clean money uh, project that then, then had funding issues, at least when I was last here. Um, uh, these are important issues to fight locally to, to get this pushed and, and to succeed. But I actually think that it's much more important um, to recognize we have to fight this in more than one forum at the same time. We need clean money locally. We need clean money nationally. And the national one might ultimately be essential to solve, to be able to get it everywhere else. Because most people don't actually have a clear sense of what happens locally for a lot of issues. I mean, really locally they do. But a lot of the stuff that gets regulated in the state level is obscure to people. What they see at the federal level is constant, and they're constantly disappointed with what happens at the federal level. So we have to find some place to build trust, and, I, and, and so I think that it's, it's really important not to kind of wait till we fix all the states and then fix the federal government. We have to be able to walk and chew gum here at the same time. Well, I'm, I'm going to end on a question from Joseph Brenner, who, who basically asked if there's some advantage that we could have over the short-term thinking political forces by thinking long-term on this. I mean, if we're willing to optimize you know, beyond the current term of politicians, is there some way we can sort of take advantage of their sort of short-term tendency? And, because after all, what we're interested in is long-term reform. Yeah, so what I've always found wonderful and kind of puzzling about long-term thinking is that at the scale that, you know, uh, this foundation is thinking about it, it's for each of us completely irrational. You know, we're all going to be dead. <laughs> so why are we wasting our time? And, and there is something um, linked that links the project that I'm talking about and that kind of irrationality. I write about it at the end of my book. Um, I, um, you know, so I was in, at Dartmouth and a woman stood up after I spoke and she said to me, okay, you've absolutely convinced me there is no hope. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing we can do. And when she said that, I, I had this kind of shock flash thought in my head. Um, uh, so... Uh, I imagined a doctor saying to me, your, your son has terminal brain cancer and there's nothing you can do. And I thought, would I do nothing? And, you know, when you think about it like that, you recognize the way in which we, in many contexts, act against the irrational or act in the face of the irrational. And love is one of those places where even if it's completely hopeless, you do whatever the hell you can. Even if you're convinced it's hopeless, you do whatever the hell you can. That's what it means to love your son. 
That's what it means to love your country. You know, there are people who go off and fight wars on crazier theories about supporting democracy than anything I've spoken about tonight. <laughs> they risk their life for love of country. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, when you hear this, when you feel the impossibility of this issue, like when you feel the impossibility of really thinking about the 10,000-year horizon, you've got to access that part in each of us which knows that the rational calculation is not the only reason we do things, we humans do things. It's what corporations do. But this is why corporations are not us. We do things, we celebrate doing things that are plainly irrational, loving our children, loving our country, loving our planet, even though we'll never see any of those things come to the perfection we imagine them to be. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.